on the screens you'll see Psalm 51, but it would be good if you could also find this psalm in the Bible because it would be great to have it open in front of you, page 573 in the Bibles. Once you've found it, you might find it easiest then to look at the screen because we're going to read it with you saying the words in bold and me saying the other words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thank you. Please keep that Psalm 51 open in front of you, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Father, please will you speak to us now through your word, and please will you help us to listen. And then please, as we look at the Psalms together, as we have been doing over the last few weeks, Please will you help us to speak to you through your word. Thank you that as we do that we can have certainty that you're listening. So please be at work in us over the next few minutes we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well those who've been around at St Ebbs over the last few weeks will hopefully by now be familiar with the thought that we're going through um, a number of the Psalms um, over the course of this term. And um, I don't know how you've been finding it. I, one of the things I've been loving about the Psalms heard something of this already today, is that they engage with every aspect of human experience, don't they? Um, 
John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. That is, everything that happens to us, everything that happens to people, is on show in here in some way. And we see something of how to relate to God in those things. Here in Psalm 51, I think fairly obviously, the human experience on show is that of guilt. King David, author of the psalm, is experiencing guilt, and frankly, he deserves to be. You can see it there in in the little title at the top of the psalm, on page 573. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You might know the story, um, if you know Old Testament well. David had sent off his army to war, but he'd stayed at home. And from his palace roof, uh, he'd seen a woman called Bathsheba. He had her brought to him. He had sex with her. She became pregnant. And so he tried to get her, hu- he tried to get her husband Uriah to come back from war so that everybody would think the baby was Uriah's baby, but Uriah wouldn't do it. So um, uh, instead, David arranges for Uriah to be killed while he's on the front line. And then he marries Bathsheba, and so the attempt is made to cover up the whole scandal. It's a horrific abuse of power, apart from anything else, isn't it? Could, could Bathsheba really have said no in this situation? It's adultery, as he says here at the top of the psalm, murder, lying. And the Lord, we were told um, went in 1 Samuel, where the story is told, is not pleased. And so he sends to David the prophet Nathan, And this was the story that we had read. Nathan comes to David and he tells him a parable, which is a kind of, to be honest, pretty watered-down version of what David had done. And David hears the parable. He's furious. He can't believe that anybody would do that. And then Nathan pins him. You are the man. What I've just described is what you have done. And David realized, and the guilt crashed in on him. And I assume sometime soon after that, Um, In the intense experience of that guilt, he wrote this psalm. And it shows us something of how to respond to that kind of guilt. The thing is, I assume that most people who've ever read Psalm 51, and most people who are here in this room, have, have not done anything quite as obviously hideous as what David did. And hopefully, never will. But every one of us either has or will experience terrible guilt, guilt that can shock us. We, 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 we do things in life and we reflect on we think, I can't believe that I did that. And when we experience that kind of guilt, it really matters how we respond to it. I think at least, at least one of, of two things often happen to people when they experience guilt. Either it can sort of make your life fall apart. That happened to David initially, actually. You end up kind of so racked by guilt that you feel like you can't keep going, you can't look yourself in the eye, kind of crippled by it. Or, and or, we kind of put up walls to protect ourselves from the guilt, to to silence it. We don't want to let it drag us down and cripple us, so we kind of redirect it towards other people. I think, see this happen often, kind of see it in myself. I, I feel bad but I find myself feeling resentful towards the people I've wronged, as though it's their fault that I feel so bad. Or I turn that resentment towards other people in my life or or to the system that shaped me. And the more I do that, the more and more embittered 
I become. One thing that will certainly happen to all guilty people, in fact to all people, is that one day they will meet their maker. We've seen that from Psalm 2, that one day God's king will call everything to order and hold everybody to account. And on that day, it will be very, very important that our guilt has been properly dealt with. Not just subjectively, that the feeling of guilt has been dealt with, but objectively. Guilt will need to have been removed. So to everybody here, actually, kind of wherever you stand with Jesus this afternoon, David's response in this psalm is an example. This is what you need to do if you don't want your guilt to destroy your life. But it also holds the key to hope in the midst of guilt, because it's going to point us beyond David, further than him, to someone who doesn't just share our problems, who doesn't just experience them like we do, but to someone who can actually fix our problems. So there are three, I think, pretty clear sections to the psalm, and they give us three things that we need to do in order to respond to guilt. Be honest, be cleansed, be transformed. So let's listen to them in turn. Be honest, verse 1 to 6. Whenever any of us does stuff wrong, um, whenever any of us sins, to use the Bible's language, all of us has got to kind of tell a story about that wrong stuff. We've got to make sense somehow of our sin and where it comes from and what it means. And um, there are lots of possible stories out there that we can choose from to tell about the things that we do wrong. I was chatting to somebody this week about um, St. Augustine and his pears. Uh, They were eating a pear, reminded me of the story, and I thought I'd tell you about it today. Um, St. Augustine was um, a great North African Christian who wrote about a time in his life when he and his friends stole some pears. And afterwards, he's reflecting on why he did that. And he reflected, well, they they weren't very nice pears. Um, He had some nicer pears available to him already. Um, nobody was making him do it. There's no particular reason to think he was a, a pear addict or anything. Why, like, why, why did he do it? And he realized it was just for the pleasure, the thrill of stealing. The sin, the wrong thing, just arose from his own heart. And he said, in reflecting on it, that's where sin lives, as it were, inside. Then in the last couple of centuries, kind of another story uh, has, has come to be told about the wrong stuff that we do. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a, a philosopher in the 18th century who wrote an account deliberately modelled on Augustine's pear thing. And um, in Rousseau's version, he was persuaded by somebody else to steal some asparagus. I don't know whether that would be more or less appealing to you than pears, but somebody else persuaded him to steal some asparagus. And um, then this, this, this other guy was going to sell the asparagus so that he could make some money and, and be able to feed his family and all that kind of business. So he did. Rousseau stole it. And then reflecting on it afterwards, he reflected that his crime wasn't driven by greed, um, but by a desire to help someone. Um, that was the thing that made him do something sinful. So it's a kind of very different relationship between him and his sin to what Augustine said, isn't it? Augustine said, my sin comes from right at the heart of me. Rousseau said, what's at the heart of me is a good impulse, but there's kind of conditions in society that warp it, and I I end up doing bad things as a result of my good impulse. Different stories that we can tell. What story does David tell about his sin? Well, have a look down at it again with me. I'll read 
I read from verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only. And you know the story about Bathsheba and Uriah, and you think, hang on a minute. God only? What, what, about, the, what about the others? This is, this is a, a, a typical Hebrew way of saying, not that there was no offense against other people, but that most fundamentally, at the heart of what David did, if you really boil it down, it was a sin against God. This is one of the things that the Bible teaches about the wrong stuff that we do. At the heart of it, we are removing God from his rightful place. We're dethroning him. So, for example, if I, well, this is what David did, but if I lie to protect my reputation, I've said that the most important thing to me is my reputation. And if, if God kind of comes into conflict with that, then he will just have to go into second place. I revealed what I think the real order of the universe ought to be. And so I've demoted God. So sin, the wrong stuff we do, is fundamentally relational. It's not just that people break God's rules, but that it's, we, we disorder his universe. It's fundamentally serious. Verse 4 Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Evil is the word that David uses to describe what he did. Not, not a lapse, not a kind of mistakes were made type apology. God would be well within his rights to condemn me. That's what he's saying. You're right in your verdict, justified when you judge. God would be within his rights to condemn me. And you can look at this and say... Well, obviously, God would be within his rights to condemn David. I mean, what, what he did was an awful thing. But, like, I've never done anything this bad. Would he be within his rights to condemn me still? Well, Jesus teaches that the difference between really big sins, murder, adultery, and less serious ones, is like the difference between a seed and a plant. It's not that you're sort of comparing apples with oranges. It's one is the seed form of the other. So, of course, what David did is worse than when I am grumpy with other people. But one is the seed form and the other one is the full-grown form. The same thing that lived in David lives in each of us. Fundamentally relational, serious. It's fundamentally rooted in who we are. And if anything, I think this is the the most jarring thing that David says, really. Verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Think about what he's saying there. The things I did, he says, to Bathsheba and to Uriah are expressions of who I am and who I've always been. When I feel guilty about something, I like to tell myself that it was out of character. So unlike me to speak to people that way. I don't, don't quite know what it was. But it, if that's true, if it is out of character, it is only out of character in the most superficial sense. Only in the sense that it's relatively unusual for my sinfulness to manifest itself in that particular way. But in a much deeper sense, it is totally in character. 
It, it comes out of who I am. This is what Augustine realized, I think. When I, when I did the thing that I feel guilty about, it's not that something came over me, but that something came out of me, what David's saying. So that is quite a bleak story, isn't it, that he tells about his sin. It's against God, serious. It's from inside me. It's not alien to me. It's a pretty bleak story. But it's, it, he's right to tell a bleak story. Do you see, he kind of, he drops all of his defenses in this psalm, doesn't he? Doesn't try and minimize, doesn't try and shift the blame. I don't know if many of you are drivers, but as a driver, you get told, um, key thing, if you have a little sort of scrape against somebody else's car, the key thing is that you must never accept responsibility. Um, and that's, you know, insurance purposes, you want to retain some control of the situation. So easy to carry that approach into the rest of life, isn't it? I, if, I, if I just drop all of my defenses, if I don't make any excuses, then I give up all control. But this is the first step to dealing with guilt. Recognize it, what it is. Be honest about it. I don't know if you've ever wondered why it is, we're going to do it in a few minutes, why it is that we confess our sins in every church service. This is why, because this is the story that the Bible tells us about our sin. If you're a, a guest here or not somebody who follows Jesus yet, I wonder if you've got a Christian friend, have you found that they apologize to you? You found that they're, they're quick to do it and unreserved. To the extent that they do, to that extent, it's because they have taken on board what this psalm teaches, the story that we're told about our sin and the stuff we do wrong. And as I say, after the sermon, we're going to have an opportunity to confess our sin together. And why not use that as an opportunity to be honest about your sin to God, perhaps for the first time, perhaps just for the first time today, and to resolve to be honest about it to other people. Be honest, that is the first thing, and the thing we're going to spend the longest on, it's important. But if this is all we've got, it would be crushing, wouldn't it? We, we just have condemnation. And nothing is worse than where you've just got condemnation and no forgiveness. And so verse 7 to 9 give us the crucial second thing. If I'd be honest, here's be cleansed. Just glance down with me at verse 7 to 9. And you'll notice that these verses are full of sort of instruction words, aren't they? Or, or requests. They're words addressed to somebody else. Cleanse me. Wash me. Let me hear. Let the bones you crush rejoice. Hide your face from me. Blot out. David knows that there's something that needs to happen to him once he's been honest. And it's something that needs to come from outside of himself. Something he needs another person to do. And wonderfully, somebody outside of himself does it. God can deal objectively and actually with what we've done wrong. And therefore, he can deal objectively with our guilt. What does he do? How does he do it? Well, it's that language again. Cleanse, wash, blot out. In the Bible, all of those are the language of sacrifice. They all have to do with the reality that God has made a way for people's sin and guilt to be taken away. In the Old Testament, these words get used a lot in relation to the temple sacrificial system, where typically what goes on is that an animal is killed, symbolically having taken on itself the sin 
of the person who's offering it. And that's what David appeals to. So uh, think, verse 9, of the image of blotting out. Powerful image. I I was chatting to one of you about this this week, actually. Think about... I was encouraged to think about blotting paper, and I tried to think about blotting paper, and then I realized I had no idea what blotting paper is. Um, So I looked up blotting paper. And the way that it works is that you've, you know, you spilt some ink on your page. This is if you're writing with a pen. And um, spilt some ink on there, and you get your blotting paper, and you sort of dab it on, and then the, the paper absorbs the ink, and your page is clean. So in sacrifice, your sin is absorbed by another, as it were, who then takes the consequences for you. And the message of the New Testament is that God himself has absorbed it. God himself has taken the consequences. When he came into the world in the person of his son, he died on the cross There he took on himself, he absorbed the sin, our sin, and he paid the price for it. verse in the New Testament in 1 Peter says, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He he absorbed what we'd done wrong and bore the consequences. And that verse ends with the conclusion, by his wounds you have been healed. So in Jesus, the sin and the guilt of anybody who comes to him are objectively taken away forever. So that any one of us can say, as David does, at the, at the middle of verse 7, I shall be clean. He's quoting actually from the bit in, a bit in Leviticus that talks about the sacrificial system. And it says, where a sacrifice is offered for somebody, that person, they shall be clean. And David says, true of me. And you can say that as well. If you'll come to Jesus and have him absorb your sin for you. This is big. I think most people in the world have a sense of the sort of stuff that we were talking about in our first section. I think most people in the world have a sense that they're not the way that they should be. They're not the way that they want to be. And certainly if they were a God, if, if there were a God, they're not the way that they should be. But almost everybody, I think, gets stuck there and feels this sense of guilt and doesn't quite know what to do with it or where to go with it, David says, don't get stuck there. Come to God to make you clean. Not that that will mean there's kind of no consequences in this life for the things that we do wrong. David certainly experienced consequences in this life. But as we come to the Lord, we are made in his sight, in relation to him, in all the things that matter most, clean and free from guilt before him. So if you're a Christian, this is you. I don't know if it feels like it today. You might feel perhaps very guilty about something, very very dirty and unclean, but the reality is that you are not because your guilt has been taken on and taken away by Jesus on the cross. And I encourage you, we own that verdict today. They shall be clean. That is the verdict God speaks over you if you're trusting in Jesus. Perhaps there's some sin that you're very weighed down by, kind of repeated. You know it's against God. You know it comes from your heart. You know that it's very serious. Trusting Jesus is no longer guilty. He will not treat you on the basis of it. He will not hold it against you. And if David's sin can be dealt with, think of David's sin. His sin can be dealt with. Then anyone's can. Reread this week a story of Charles Simeon, who was a Christian who lived in Cambridge at the end of the 18th century. And um, 
story of how he became a Christian, it came, it happened for him as he was thinking about his guilt. And that was happening for him ahead of Easter Sunday, where everybody in his college was supposed to be taking communion on Easter Sunday. And he felt stressed about this. And um, he spent ages trying to reconcile on the one hand that he just felt so guilty about the person that he was. And on the other hand, he was about to, you know, in some sense, experience Christ's sacrifice. And he thought, well, how do those things fit together? And then he realized, actually, that's the whole point of Christ's sacrifice. He wrote, I can transfer all my guilt to another. I will not bear it on my soul a moment longer. And then later on, he wrote about how how over the course of that Easter week, his sense of hope kind of grew and grew. And then on Easter Sunday, he wrote, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And I have the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. I can lay my guilt on another. I won't bear it a moment longer. Come to Jesus. Lay your guilt on him. And then know it taken away. Be cleansed. Then here's the third thing, and I said, this, I said the last one was crucial. This one's crucial too. Third thing, had be honest, be cleansed, be transformed. And this is here, I think, in the psalm from verse 10 onwards. Because the person who truly turns away from their guilt, who truly repents, to use Jesus' language, that person always wants more than forgiveness. I, if I'm just sorry that I got caught... <laughs> then I just, want, I just want forgiveness, that's enough. But if I'm sorry that I, I did the thing, then I want more than that. And God offers here not just cleansing, but transformation. David recognizes that the problem comes from the core of him, and so he asks God to change him from the core. You see that in verse 10? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create's quite a strong word, isn't it? Sort of clean it up a bit, but give me a new one. It's like he's saying to God, make me all over again, starting from the middle. Or um, middle of verse 12, he says, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Since the, the problems come from David's heart, he recognizes, or they come from what his spirit loves, is most willing to do, he knows that he can't just try and change. It comes from the heart. How are you going to change that? He needs God to make his heart anew. I wonder if you'll pray that today. He recognized, as we saw, that his problem is fundamentally to do with his relationship with God. And so he asks God to sort that out. Have a look at verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He remembers what it used to be like when he just kind of related freely to God. He didn't have this burden of guilt hanging over him. He remembers how, how freeing it was when he put God first in all of his life. And he thinks, I want that back. Lord, please will you bring that back. And once you've seen the extent of sin and the even greater extent of God's mercy and cleansing, the thing that you want more and more is for God to be praised by more and more people. And so that's what David prays, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Now, at one level, this is just how it works in any relationship. 
one level, it's just how it goes. If there's been a kind of rupture in a, in a relationship, you don't just want forgiveness. You don't just want the thing that you've done wrong not held against you anymore. You want restoration. You want the relationship fixed and brought back together. And you, you realize that you need to change in order to make that happen. It's how it works in any relationship, but all the more so when it's relating to the person against whom our sin is fundamentally and from whom cleansing can come. Now, these are big things. Um, change is very hard. The Bible says with God's help and God's help alone, it is possible. When, when you pray like this, God does actually change you. Maybe today that's the thing that you find the hardest to believe. I can't, I can't, you know, I can't be a proper Christian. I can't really follow God because I'm just how I am and, and how I am is rubbish and I'm, I'm stuck. That's you. I think the key word is the one at the start of verse 10. Create. God is powerful enough to create the world out of zero raw materials. Then he can, he can recreate you, regardless of how bad the raw materials might be. That's his power. It's possible and it's necessary. God loves us, all of us here, uh, enough to accept us as we are with all of our guilt and all of our sin and all of our mixed-upness, but he loves us much too much to leave us as we are. And so to come to him means to commit to his program of change for my life. And that program will be hard and probably quite slow, but the goal of the program and the certain outcome of the program is to make me more like Jesus, which is to say to make me more fully human than I've ever been before. Will you pray that? Will you commit to God's program for change in your life? A very strange incident in the New Testament I thought about in relation to this, where Jesus meets a paralyzed man and he asks him the question, do you want to get well? And you read that and you think, what on earth are you asking him a question like that for? He's paralyzed and you're Jesus. But it becomes clear that what Jesus is asking him is, are you ready for a whole new life? With, with Jesus... His work in our lives, his, his cleansing, his healing, and transformation always come together. So he says to you today, do you want to get well? Do you want to be cleansed from guilt and from sin? Which is to say, are you ready for a whole new life? That's his offer. As we finish, just um, kind of an epilogue really to this psalm. Verse 18 and 19, I don't know what you thought of those as we read them out together. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. We've been hearing over the last few weeks that this book of Psalms was brought together in its current form after the people of Israel came back from exile in Babylon. And I think given that, these are the verses that would really have caught their eye because they are living in the rubble of Jerusalem. Walls have been torn down. There's not very much of a temple to speak of, where they can relate to God and offer sacrifices on the altar and all that sort of thing. So verse 18 and 19, this is their situation. Rebuild Zion. May it please you to do that. And this psalm is teaching them that the only way for God's people to be right with him, the only way for God's people to be restored and, and, and who they're meant to be, is for them to have a king like this. To, to have a king with a heart made pure and a steadfast spirit, to have one who teaches God's way faithfully, whose lips declare God's praise, 
And ultimately, that king was not David. Just ask Uriah. It was not David. It was David's descendant, Jesus. Jesus, who never sinned. Jesus, who, who in himself, as regards his own life, never needed to pray this prayer. And yet, as we've heard, he took our sin on him to the extent that he could say, my sin is always before me. You, God, are right to judge me because I bear the sin of my people. Not his own sin, our sin. And God did at the cross. But then he recreated him. He made him new as he raised him up from the dead and us with him. Jesus actually, though he had no need in himself to sing this song, he sung it more truly than any of us. And it's because of that 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 we can, um, as God's children. We can be honest with God about our guilt, knowing that Jesus has taken it away for God. Here is how we deal with guilt. Stop hiding. We don't minimize the extent to which we've got things wrong, but we own it. We ask God to wash us clean. And then we trust God when he says he's done it. We own his verdict. And then we get going with him on the adventure of being transformed more and more into the people that he created us to be.